0: This is the Pat O'Keefe Show.
1: Follow me into the ain't no God on the streets. The heart of the
2: jungle.
3: All right, on a summer Friday in New York City, still dreaming about that Field of Dreams game last night in America's Heartland. Between the Yankees and the White Sox, that turned out to be everything Major League Baseball wanted it to be, considering the setting, the atmosphere, the nostalgia, and the way that game finished. Can't say the same about Yankee fans this morning. But, you know, sometimes in sports, you get a team that goes on a special run and has one of those special seasons when everything seems to fall into place. And last night, on a diamond, in the middle of the country... In Dyersville, Iowa, in front of about 8,000 fans, many of whom I would bet were watching their first in person Major League Baseball game. It was the perfect backdrop for one of those special nights. The type of night that championship teams look back on and point to as a turning point or a tipping point after the season. And last night, it became even more clear that the team in the midst of one of those special seasons is the Chicago White Sox. It's Pat O'Keefe in for uh, the guys this morning. Greeny here after an experiment last night and really a special event that was put on by Major League Baseball. As I mentioned, it, it gave baseball anyway, everything they could have wanted in this field of dreams game. I mean, I was locked in from the pregame coverage, which started at six o'clock. I thought they did a great job. Kevin Costner was part of it. That was really cool. Just kind of hearing his thoughts and really seeing him back in that environment, uh, you know, 32 years after that movie came out in 1989 and full disclosure. And I've been talking about this a lot this week. That was an important movie for me. I saw it in the theater when I was 10 years old. It still stands up For me, as my favorite baseball movie of all time, and I'll watch pretty much any baseball movie that you put in front of me. But if I'm asked to rank them and tell you which is the most important one to me, it still is Field of Dreams. Because for me and for so many people, it's more than just a baseball movie. And last night, and we'll get to the game because what a game it was. And in my mind, it says a lot about the Yankees season, and it's kind of an encapsulation of what has been the Yankees season so far. But just first on the event itself, last night was more than just a game. I mean, you heard Aaron Boone throughout the morning, and we'll hear more from him in a little bit, just talking about the atmosphere. I mean, that was a crucial, crucial, devastating loss for the Yankees. Just another gut punch of a loss. And after the game... And I usually get on Aaron Boone for being too chipper after tough losses and whatnot. I can understand it this time, talking about how special an atmosphere it was and how special an environment it was. And it was. It was. For one night anyway, we could step back and say that was that was something. That was more than just the game of baseball. And as the White Sox took a 7-3 to three lead into the sixth inning... With Lance Lynn, one of the American League Cy Young favorites on the mound, while the Yankees were trying to piece the game together with Andrew Heaney making his third straight subpar start since joining the Yankees, I was prepared to come on this morning and talk all about the majesty of the night, that pregame ceremony that starred Kevin Costner, the players walking through the cornstalks, actual Major League Baseball players coming onto the field through the corn. I mean, it really did throughout the night hit all the right notes for me and a lot of people. The nostalgia, the old time feel. It really had the sense for me anyway of going back in time. And when the Yankees were down 7-3 to three in the middle of the game, that was the story for me. I was ready to chalk it up to, okay, tough loss, gotta bounce back. You're not going to win every game or every series by the end of the season. But boy, this was some night. But unfortunately for the Yankees, as special as this night was as a whole, this 9-8 loss ended up being yet another in a long list of gut-punch brutal losses that this team, this Yankees team that is in a dogfight simply to make the playoffs, has endured during this tumultuous season. And last night, once again, they were done in by the back end of their bullpen. I mean, what makes it so frustrating? What makes it so frustrating is, for a brief moment, and I happened to be on the air last night as this was all unfolding, for a brief moment, and I mentioned as such, it had the makings of the best Yankees win of the season, Look, the White Sox are a top team in the American League, and they're only getting better. They're running away with the American League Central. They have the best pitching staff in the American League. Their lineup is getting healthy, and that is a gauntlet of a nine-man lineup. Yankees fell behind 7-3. Once again, Andrew Heaney, who they picked up just before the trade deadline, proved that he is not a long-term solution for this Yankees rotation. The good news is, though, it seems that reinforcements are on their way back. But the Yankees, like they did in Heaney's last start against the Mariners on Saturday, they showed fight, they showed resilience, and they showed a flair for the dramatic. I mean, the whole night had the tinge of Hollywood. How could it not, when Kevin Costner literally walks onto the field before before the game to begin the festivities and addresses the crowd on an old-time microphone. Hatter did not have the tinge of Hollywood. And that was okay for me. Because, you know what, movies and nostalgia and stuff like that makes me feel good. It's designed to make people feel good, and it was great. And then on top of that, to get the Hollywood ending, or so it seemed from the Yankees' perspective, down to your last out, top of the ninth inning, trailing by three, and Aaron Judge hits his second baseball into the cornstalks to pull the Yankees within a run. And then Joey Gallo works a walk. All of this, by the way, against Liam Hendricks, arguably the best closer in baseball this season. And then, as I said last night, as it was happening, sometimes it just finds you. And it always seems to find Giancarlo Stanton since he joined the Yankees that spot always seems to find Giancarlo Stanton and you're just waiting for him to not come through because more often than not since coming over in the offseason before 2018 Giancarlo Stanton has not come through in the big spot for the Yankees Stanton's tenure so far has been marked by two things not coming through in those situations and not being available to play more often than not. Well, guess what? First pitch he sees into the cornfields beyond the left field fence to give the Yankees an 8-7 to seven lead. Just an unbelievable turn of events. As if the night wasn't special enough. As if Major League Baseball, who poured so much time and energy and resources into this event, as if they hadn't already gotten their money's worth, You have Judge and Stanton, one out from defeat, each smacking a two-run home run. That's Hollywood. That's as Hollywood as it gets. And then my immediate thought as I'm watching this game unfold and I'm watching Stanton around the bases is, okay, who's going to come in for the bottom of the ninth inning? And I had the sound off on the TV because I was in the middle of a show and I'm watching for the camera to show the Yankee bullpen and I see Zach Britton. And my first reaction was, (sighs) It wasn't a good reaction. From the Yankee perspective, I was hoping to see Jonathan Luizaga out there. And I had a lot of Yankee fans call me last night and said the same thing. And that's not Monday morning quarterbacking. That's recapping what my reaction in the moment was. And if you look back at this litany of Yankee losses this season... Brutal loss after brutal loss. I mean, they have more this season than I can remember in 10 years. Now, of course, a couple of qualifiers for that statement. The Yankees have been an above 500 team for a quarter of a century. And a large portion of that time, they've been one of the best teams in Major League Baseball. So if you play at such a high level over such a long period of time, you're not going to suffer a large amount of brutal gut-punch losses over that period of time. You're just not. The law of averages says you're not going to. And then the other part of the equation is, generally, these types of losses are caused by meltdowns from the back end of your bullpen. Well, during the last 25 years, I'll use the same time frame, the Yankees, at the back end of their bullpen, and I realized he retired eight years ago, but during the last 25 years, the majority of that time... The Yankees had the best guy ever to do it at the back end of their bullpen. But this season in particular, I think the Yankees are starting to learn how the other half lives. Because even since Mariano Rivera retired in 2013, the Yankees have had above average bullpen performances during that time. I mean, Rafael Soriano was good when he was in there. David Robertson was good when he was in there. Aroldis Chapman has been, since he came to the Yankees, by and large, this season notwithstanding, but he has been one of the best closers in baseball. So the Yankees have been extremely spoiled in that regard. And now, that narrative has completely flipped. I mean, we can go through the list. Do you want to take a walk down memory lane with me right now? Because we don't have to go back that far. Today is August 13th. If we go back... In time, two months and three days. Thank you, RJ. Let me count this. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Two months and three days. Not a long period of time. Some of the most brutal losses you can ever imagine. Let's recount them. Let's go through this together. It could be a therapy session. Talking about it maybe helps us get through it. Because I promise there is a silver lining at the end of my point, my long-winded point here. But first, for context. You go back to June 10th. Yankees come into a game against Minnesota 33-29. Still treading water above five hundred, They were going for a three-game sweep against the Twins. A Aroldis Chapman on with a 5-3 to three lead in the ninth inning. Gives up a two-run home run to Josh Donaldson. Followed by a two-run home run to Nelson Cruz. And the Yankees lose 7-5. to five. At the time, you're like, okay, they still won the series. Not a huge deal. June 30th, Yankee Stadium. Angels in town. We remember this one. This is when it started to get real bad, all right? Yankees come in with a record of 41-38, and a highly anticipated showdown that night against Shohei Ohtani. He was on the mound at the stadium, and the Yankees exploded on him, scoring seven runs in the first inning. They knocked Ohtani out after two-thirds of an inning. Well, what happened after that? The Yankee offense went to sleep. They scored one more run the rest of the game. They had to sit through two rain delays, but still, despite all of that, the Yankees had an 8 4 lead entering the ninth inning. When Chapman again gives up a grand slam to Jared Walsh to tie the score at eight, Lucas Lidke comes in, walk, single, two run single, RBI double, seven run ninth inning for the Angels. Yankees lose 11 8. Less than a week after that, 4th of July. You're out enjoying your barbecues, maybe some beach time, listening to the game on the radio, whatever. Yankees Mets game one of a du- doubleheader in the Subway Series. Yankees now are just trying to stay above 500, a record of 41 and 40. They led the game four to one, and they led the game five to four, entering the top of the seventh, which in a doubleheader is the final inning. Chapman again. Gives up a home run to Pete Alonso. Ties the score at five. Hits the next batter. Walks the next one. Chapman out of the game. Lidkey comes in. Throws gas on the fire again. The Mets score six runs in the seventh inning. And they beat the Yankees 10-5. I'm not done. I'm just getting warmed up. The next one to me is the coup de gras, July 11th at Houston. Now the Yankees had been playing well. They bounced back from that loss to the Mets. They come into this one 46-42. and 42. They were trying to finish a 5-1 and road trip leading into the All-Star break. They had all sorts of momentum, and they jumped in out to a 7-2 lead in the bottom of the ninth inning. What happens? The Astros score six runs punctuated by Jose Altuve hitting a walk-off, three-run, home run, 8-7. Houston wins. They rip off Altuve's shirt trolling the Yankees in front of their faces and all the momentum the Yankees had going into the All-Star break went up in smoke that afternoon in Houston. All right, let's regroup. Go to the All-Star break, come out of the All-Star break, you're playing well again. You win a series against Boston. You win a series against Philadelphia. Somehow, despite all of your offensive struggles, injuries, everything, you're still in the wild card race in the American League. And that brings us to a four-game series at Fenway Park. July 22nd. Yankees are now 50-44. and 44. Start of a four-game series at Fenway. Yankees come in on a four-game winning streak. Chad Green, one out away from closing a 3-1 to win. When Kike Hernandez hits a two-run double to tie the game at three, the Yankees took the lead back in the top of the 10th inning, but they were out of pitchers, so they had to go with Brooks Krisky in the bottom of the 10th inning. Yankees had a 4-3 lead trying to protect, and Krisky throws not one, not two, LeBron James, not three, but four wild pitches, and the Red Sox walk off with a 5-4 to win on a sacrifice fly. That was inevitably set up by one of those wild pitches. Somehow the Yankees regrouped. Two days later on a Saturday at Fenway, they won one of their most impressive games of the season. The following day, looking to salvage a split of the four-game series, July 25th, Domingo Herman takes a no-hitter into the eighth inning. Yankees are up four to nothing. Herman gives up a leadoff double to Alex Verdugo in the bottom of the eighth. Herman leaves the game. Jonathan Loizaga comes in. And gives up four straight hits without recording it out. Red Sox score five runs in the bottom of the eighth. The no-hitter was gone. The lead was gone. The win was gone. As the Yankees lost that game 5-4. to And then last night, look. The Yankees, unlike some of those games that I had mentioned previously, showed a lot of fight in last night's game. Especially in that ninth inning. I mean, it really was impressive. It was set up for their best win of the season. The setting... The field of dreams, the opponent, you know, the continued shorthanded nature of this Yankees team. Remember, this is a Yankees team with 20 players either on the injured list or the COVID-19 injured list for last night's game. And they're going up against one of the best teams in the American League and they fight back and are all set up for maybe their biggest win of the season. And then, of course, in the bottom of the ninth inning, Zach Britton comes on. The first batter, easy ground out to first base. And then the next batter to me was the crucial one. Sevi Zavala, the catcher, the ninth hitter for the White Sox. Britton jumps out in front of him 0-2, and then he loses him. He walks him. So now all of a sudden, instead of nobody on and two out, you've got a runner on base, you've got the potential winning run at the plate, and anybody who has watched baseball knows when a pitcher throws four straight balls to a batter, And the potential winning run is at the plate. You've got to start that guy off with a strike. And to Zach Britton's credit, he started Tim Anderson off with a strike. And Tim Anderson's eyes were the size of saucers waiting for that pitch to enter the zone. And he absolutely crushed it to right field. And Major League Baseball really, really had its Hollywood ending. Baseball still got its Hollywood ending. It was better than the Hollywood ending it was set up for because there's nothing like a walk-off home run with the ball hitting into the cornfield. I'm almost positive that's the first time that's ever been done, at least in televised history. But the Yankee fans were deprived of their Hollywood ending last night. It would have been, especially for Stanton. How long have the Yankee fans been waiting for Stanton to come through with that at-bat in that moment in the clutch? And for him to jump on the first pitch was incredible. And then for them not to see it all the way through, was just an incredibly frustrating night for the Yankees. Now, I did say there was a silver lining, in my opinion. In pretty much every situation that I just laid out over the last two months and three days, the Yankees have found a way to bounce back from these brutal losses. I mean, the Mets game, game one of the doubleheader, when Chapman implodes in the ninth inning, they bounce back that night and one game two, and then they won four of their next six heading into the All-Star break, leading into the Altuve game. And then you come out of the All-Star break, you're still playing good baseball until you get to Fenway Park and you lose those two brutal games a couple of weeks ago, the Brooks-Kriskie game and the domingo Herman game. They lose that series three games to one. How do they respond to that? They went to Tampa Bay and took two out of three from the Rays. So we will see how this Yankees team responds to this latest loss. Are there cracks in the foundation? Absolutely. Are the Yankees as a whole playing better than they were earlier this season? Absolutely. So is tonight, not tonight, is last night, is last night just a one-off? Is it just another in a long line of brutal losses this season that the Yankees are going to show some resiliency and overcome? Or at some point, is there a straw that's going to break the camel's back? Because I don't know about you. I can't remember a team that endured the types of losses that I just laid out over the last two months and three days like this Yankees team has done. And on top of all that, guess what? They're still in the race for the American League wildcard. You're listening to Pat
0: O'Keefe on 98.7 ESPN.
3: Thought last night's Field of Dreams baseball game was a can't-miss event of the summer. I mean, for a, a one-off, one-night, first-of-its-kind event, not one-of-its-kind event because Major League Baseball has already announced that they're going to do this again, but a first-of-its-kind event in the middle of August when generally on a weeknight in August there's not a ton of big-time events to consume, I thought it was awesome. I thought it was fantastic. I, I thought I thought the setting was great. They lucked out. It was a perfect night weather-wise, as you heard Aaron Boone mention <laughs> And what a ball game. I mean, from just a a pure business perspective, you know, when you put so much time and energy and effort, and remember, this game was actually supposed to be played last year in 2020, but it was postponed a year because of the shortened season last year in the coronavirus pandemic. So the planning for this game has been in the works since 2019 and well before that, I would imagine. So for it to turn out the way it did was a resounding success. And the man who had the last word... The Chicago White Sox All-Star shortstop, Tim Anderson.
1: You know, once I made contact, I knew it was over. I knew it was out. You know, but these are the moments you want to be in. Uh, you know, these these big games like this, this is when the time to show up. We played a great game all the way through. And, uh, you know, we was able to finish it, and uh, we got the win. I'll
3: tell you, the Chicago White Sox have the makings of a great team because their pitching staff has been there all season long, and now you have... Guys in their lineup starting to come back who haven't been big contributors all season long. Jose Abreu's been there, but he hasn't been consistent like he was last year when he was the American League MVP. You got Eloy Jimenez back. You got Luis Robert back. I mean, they have a a young, dynamic, exciting, talented team. And they're obviously going to be a factor in the Major League Baseball playoffs, something the Yankees hope that they will be, something that the Mets... Hope That they will be and what a 24 hours it was for them because just think of how the week started for the Mets 2 and 8 in their last 10 coming off a three game sweep over the weekend to the Phillies dropping out of first place out of second place all the way down to third place day off on Monday And then the way Tuesday's game started off, with a three-run homer in the top of the first inning for Juan Soto, and then that game gets suspended to be resumed on Wednesday afternoon as part of a doubleheader. Mets had to come from behind in that game to win, and then another game is postponed, so a doubleheader yesterday. And all of a sudden, the Mets win game one, on the back of Brandon Nimmo, and have Game 2 in their grasp, one out away, a two-run lead in the top of the seventh and final inning, and a slow ground ball to second base, that, okay, if you want to tell me that Jeff McNeil can't throw the runner out at first base and it's going to be an infield single, I'll buy that. But if you saw Jeff McNeil's effort on that play, I really have to question it and his decision-making. Because in that situation, when your team's up by two runs, and there's two outs, and there's runners on second and third base, you have to keep that ball in the infield. And he was unable to do so. Two runs scored. The Nationals tied the game. And then the Mets needed somebody to step up. And the guy who stepped up is the guy who's usually there at the microphone telling everybody it's going to be okay, telling everybody that we've got this. Well, it's one thing to say it. It's another thing to do it. And yesterday, Pete Alonso did it when the Mets needed it. The walk-off home run in the bottom of the seventh inning, giving the Mets the double-header sweep, giving them the three-game sweep. I think it was the first time in more than two months that the Mets have won three games in a row. And now all of a sudden, they're back into second place. They're tied in the loss column with the first-place Phillies. They're in a clear three-team race for the National League East crown. The wild card ain't coming out of the National League East this season, so it's going to be one of the following Phillies, Mets, or Braves that is going to make it into the postseason. And the Mets have as good a shot as any of them. And Pete Alonso, after his heroics, spoke about his team's resiliency in this NL East race.
4: Uh, we've always been such a resilient group. I mean, we, we've been coming back all year long. We've been fighting. We've never been out of it, uh, despite, despite where we're at in the game. And I, I think that this team, it's just built with a bunch of high-character guys. We have so much talent, but I've been saying this all year long. I mean, the amount of character that we have in that clubhouse, the amount of fight, resiliency, and grit, its I, I think it's unparalleled. I, I really do. And for us, it's we have a really special group. We're willing to go full throttle.
3: Yeah, it's funny, because Alonso took a lot of heat on this station and other outlets for his uh, comments after the weekend, basically saying how the team has... Dedicated their lives to this season and to this team, and that we got this and everything's going to be okay. And at the time, you know, it sounded like it really didn't sound like much. It sounded like a lot of nothing. But look, yesterday certainly did not sound like a lot of nothing because that was probably the biggest hit of the season for this Mets team. And it, it, it was hard not to think back to July 31st, 2015, against that same Washington Nationals team. And it was Wilmer Flores' walk-off home run in the bottom of the 12th inning that night in a 2-1 12-inning Mets win over the Nationals that started them on a seven-game winning streak and ultimately led them to the National League East title and all the way to the World Series. It was the same time of year, just after the trade deadline. Mets were floundering then. Mets were floundering now. Same opponent. A lot of similarities there. So we'll see how that turns out. The biggest difference is right now what lies ahead for the Mets because their next 13 games are against two teams that happen to be the best two teams in the National League, the Giants and the Dodgers, beginning with a three-game weekend series against the Dodgers tonight at City Field. And after yesterday's win, Louis Rojas talked about the gauntlet that lies ahead of facing the Dodgers and the Giants.
5: We get ready to play any team the same way. Um... I don't think we shy away uh, because of the talent or the run differential that you may see in the standings, which is unbelievable uh, by these two teams. Um, We've paid attention from afar. Uh, we got pro- we're studying them now more thoroughly as we're gonna, uh, since we're going to play them tomorrow. But I think everyone here is in the same weight class. I mean, you, we went to Pittsburgh and, you know, you, you think Pittsburgh is going to be, you know, a team that's going to underperform against you? Like, no, like they, they play really good baseball against us and they, they, they beat us there. Uh, so you got to prepare the same way against, uh, against all the teams that you're going to face.
3: And that's what made this three-game series against the Nationals so significant for the Mets because you've got the Dodgers coming up and they're 23 games above 500. And then you have the Giants coming up and they're 33 games above 500. So you play three against the Dodgers at home, and then you go to San Francisco for three. You go to L.A. to play the Dodgers for four, and then you come back to City Field and play three against the Giants. So you can't afford, with that lying ahead, you can't afford to lose games to the Washington Nationals. And Pete Alonso made sure they didn't yesterday, and he also recognizes the significance of these next two weeks against the Dodgers and the Giants.
4: I mean it's a huge huge test for us and um I mean it's there's a a lot of potential like who who are we going to face in the playoffs? Like what? Who's going to win? Who's going to lose? But these are, um, I mean, over this, over this stretch, we got a lot of high quality teams that we're gonna that we're gonna play, and uh, this is uh, these games are, yeah, they're they're really important. But this is a, this is this is a kind of a, a show me a show me a stretch. Like what what are we what are we made of? How can we uh, really? impact the game and how can, and how our plans kind of, how our game plan uh, can be executed. So it's going to be a fun series for us. I mean, uh, there's going to be a lot of talent that we're going to be playing against. Um, I mean, not, not just the two weeks, but for the rest of the year, we got to um, we really have to keep sticking together and, and keep working together. And I think that if we continue to do that, keep playing as a team, having each other's backs, I think that we're going to come out um, we're going to come out very successful.
3: The toughest part about this next stretch for the Mets. Look, Mets-Dodgers is always a marquee matchup. That's the Sunday night ESPN game, 7 o'clock at Citi Field. The Mets then have to fly out to the West Coast and play at San Francisco on Monday night. That's very difficult. That's a very tough spot for the Mets that they were put in by Major League Baseball. But obviously they want Mets-Dodgers on national TV on Sunday night. But usually you either play a day game on Sunday before flying across the country or you get an off day on Monday. Neither the case for the Mets, which again added more importance to these last three games against Washington. If you can get through this next stretch of 13 games against the Dodgers and the Giants and the Dodgers and the Giants, just tread water. Go 7-6. and six. Go 6-7. Six and seven. Just don't play yourself out of the NL East race. Well, then the schedule gets a whole lot easier, and the Mets could be in decent shape, especially with a Jacob deGrom return down the stretch of the regular season.
0: You're listening to Pat O'Keefe on 98.7 ESPN.
3: thought last night's Field of Dreams baseball game was a can't-miss event of the summer. I mean, for a one-off, one-night, first-of-its-kind event, not one of its kind event because Major League Baseball has already announced that they're going to do this again, but a first of its kind event in the middle of August when generally on a weeknight in August there's not a ton of big time events to consume. I thought it was awesome. I thought it was fantastic. I, I thought I thought the setting was great. They lucked out. It was a perfect night weather-wise, as you heard Aaron Boone mention. And what a ball game. I mean, from just a, a pure business perspective, you know, when you put so much time and energy and effort. And remember, this game was actually supposed to be played last year in 2020, but it was postponed a year because of the shortened season last year in the coronavirus pandemic. So the planning for this game has been in the works since 2019 and well before that, I would imagine. So for it to turn out the way it did was a resounding success. And the man who had the last word, the Chicago White Sox All-Star shortstop, Tim Anderson.
1: You know, once I made contact, I knew it was over. I knew it was out. You know, but these are the moments you want to be in. Uh, you know, these these big games like this, this is when the time to show up. We played a great game all the way through, and, uh, you know, we was able to finish it, and uh, we got the win. I'll
3: tell you, the Chicago White Sox have the makings of a great team because their pitching staff has been there all season long, and now you have... Guys in their lineup starting to come back who haven't been big contributors all season long. Jose Abreu's been there, but he hasn't been consistent like he was last year when he was the American League MVP. You got Eloy Jimenez back. You got Luis Robert back. I mean, they have a a young, dynamic, exciting, talented team. And they're obviously going to be a factor in the Major League Baseball playoffs, something the Yankees hope that they will be, something that the Mets... Hope that they will be. And what a 24 hours it was for them because just think of how the week started for the Mets. Two and eight in their last 10, coming off a three game sweep over the weekend to the Phillies, dropping out of first place, out of second place, all the way down to third place, day off on Monday. And then the way Tuesday's game started off, with a three-run homer in the top of the first inning for Juan Soto, and then that game gets suspended to be resumed on Wednesday afternoon as part of a doubleheader. Mets had to come from behind in that game to win, and then another game is postponed, so a doubleheader yesterday. And all of a sudden, the Mets win game one, on the back of Brandon Nimmo, and have Game 2 in their grasp, one out away, a two-run lead in the top of the seventh and final inning, and a slow ground ball to second base that, okay, if you want to tell me that Jeff McNeil can't throw the runner out at first base and it's going to be an infield single, I'll buy that. But if you saw Jeff McNeil's effort on that play, I really have to question it and his decision-making. Because in that situation, when your team's up by two runs, and there's two outs, and there's runners on second and third base, you have to keep that ball in the infield. And he was unable to do so. Two runs scored. The Nationals tied the game. And then the Mets needed somebody to step up. And the guy who stepped up is the guy who's usually there at the microphone telling everybody it's going to be okay, telling everybody that we've got this. Well, it's one thing to say it. It's another thing to do it. And yesterday, Pete Alonso did it when the Mets needed it. The walk-off home run in the bottom of the seventh inning, giving the Mets the double-header sweep, giving them the three-game sweep. I think it was the first time in more than two months that the Mets have won three games in a row. And now all of a sudden, they're back into second place. They're tied in the loss column with the first-place Phillies. They're in a clear three-team race for the National League East crown. The wild card ain't coming out of the National League East this season, so it's going to be one of the following Phillies, Mets, or Braves that is going to make it into the postseason. And the Mets have as good a shot as any of them. And Pete Alonso, after his heroics, spoke about his team's resiliency in this NL East race.
4: Uh, we've always been such a resilient group. I mean, we, we've been coming back all year long. We've been fighting. We've never been out of it, uh, despite, despite where we're at in the game. And I, I think that this team, it's just built with a bunch of high character guys. We have so much talent, but I've been saying this all year long. I mean, the amount of character that we have in that clubhouse, the amount of fight, resiliency, and grit, it's, I, I think it's unparalleled. I, I really do. And for us, it's we have a really special group. We're willing to go full throttle.
3: Yeah, it's funny because Alonzo took a lot of heat on this station in other outlets for his uh, comments after the weekend, basically saying how the team has dedicated their lives to this season and to this team, and that we got this and everything's going to be okay. And at the time, you know, it sounded like it really didn't sound like much. It sounded like a lot of nothing. But look, yesterday certainly did not sound like a lot of nothing. Because that was probably the biggest hit of the season for this Mets team. and It it was hard not to think back to July 31st, 2015 against that same Washington Nationals team. And it was Wilmer Flores' walk-off home run in the bottom of the 12th inning that night. In a 2-1, 12-inning Mets win over the Nationals that started them on a 7-game winning streak. And ultimately led them to the National League East title and all the way to the World Series. It was the same time of year, just after the trade deadline. Mets were floundering then. Mets were floundering now. Same opponent. A lot of similarities there. So we'll see how that turns out. The biggest difference is right now what lies ahead for the Mets. Because their next 13 games are against two teams that happen to be the best two teams in the National League. The Giants and the Dodgers, beginning with a three-game weekend series against the Dodgers tonight at City Field. And after yesterday's win, Louie Rojas talked about the gauntlet that lies ahead of facing the Dodgers and the Giants.
5: We get ready to play any team the same way. Um, I don't think we shy away uh, because of the talent or the run differential that you may see in the standings, which is unbelievable uh, by these two teams. Um, We've paid attention from afar. Uh, we got pro- we're studying them now more thoroughly as we're gonna, uh, since we're going to play them tomorrow. But... I think everyone here is in the same weight class. I mean, we went to Pittsburgh and, you know, you you think Pittsburgh is going to be, you know, a team that's going to underperform against you? Like, no, like they they play really good baseball against us and they they beat us there. Uh, So you got to prepare the same way against against all the teams that you're going to face.
2: And that's
3: what made this three-game series against the Nationals so significant for the Mets because you've got the Dodgers coming up and they're 23 games above 500 and then you have the Giants coming up and they're thirty-three games above five hundred. So you play three against the Dodgers at home, and then you go to San Francisco for three. You go to LA to play the Dodgers for four, and then you come back to City Field and play three against the Giants. So you can't afford, with that lying ahead, you can't afford to lose games to the Washington Nationals. And Pete Alonso made sure they didn't yesterday, and he also recognizes the significance of these next two weeks against the Dodgers and the Giants.
4: I mean, it's a huge, huge test for us. And um, I mean, it's, there's a, a lot of potential. Like who... Who are we going to face in the playoffs? Like, what? Who's going to win? Who's going to lose? But these are, um, I mean, over this, over this stretch, we got a lot of high-quality teams that we're gonna that we're gonna play, and uh, this is uh, these games are, yeah, they're they're really important. But this is a, this is this is a kind of a, a show me show me a stretch. Like, what what are we what are we made of? How can we uh, really? impact the game and how can, and how our plans kind of, how our game plan uh, can be executed. So it's going to be a fun series for us. I mean, uh, there's going to be a lot of talent that we're going to be playing against. Um, I mean, not, not just the two weeks, but for the rest of the year, we got to um, we really have to keep sticking together and, and keep working together. And I think that if we continue to do that, keep playing as a team, having each other's backs, I think that we're going to come out um, we're going to come out very successful.
3: The toughest part about this next stretch for the Mets. Look, Mets-Dodgers is always a marquee matchup. That's the Sunday night ESPN game, 7 o'clock at City Field. The Mets then have to fly out to the West Coast and play at San Francisco on Monday night. That's very difficult. That's a very tough spot for the Mets that they were put in by Major League Baseball. But obviously they want Mets-Dodgers on national TV on Sunday night. But usually you either play a day game on Sunday before flying across the country or you get an off day on Monday. Neither the case for the Mets, which again added more importance to these last three games against Washington. If you can get through this next stretch of 13 games against the Dodgers and the Giants and the Dodgers and the Giants, just tread water. Go 7 and 6. Go 6 and 7. Just don't play yourself out of the NL East race. Well, then the schedule gets a whole lot easier and the Mets could be in decent shape especially with a Jacob deGrom return down the stretch of the regular season. You're listening to Pat O'Keefe on ninety eight
0: point seven ESPN.
3: Jets and Giants, and we'll get back to the Field of Dreams game in a couple of minutes. Jets and Giants tomorrow night. Uh, you can listen to it right here on 98.7 ESPN New York. Our pregame coverage begins at six thirty. Dan Grassa and Greg Buttle. kick off at seven thirty with Bob Wishusan and Marty Lyons, so it's starting to feel like old times getting the band back together there. Uh, the story from the Jets perspective, it's our first look at Zach Wilson. Mixed reviews, training camp. Some bad, some not so bad. But it's also training camp, and it's the only thing we have to go by on a professional level for the number two overall pick in the draft. Stories how Wilson has struggled in practice with interceptions, with taking sacks, low completion percentage. But again, it's just not only training camp, but his first NFL training camp. And you also have to take into account the step up in the level of competition For Zach Wilson, I mean, this isn't Trevor Lawrence who played an ACC slash pseudo professional schedule last season in college. At BYU, I think they opened up against Navy last season. So it's it's a big jump up in the level of competition. But we will see Zach Wilson on the field. We won't see his counterpart here in New York, Daniel Jones. Joe Judge is holding Daniel Jones and several starters out of the first preseason game. He said he's going to treat it kind of like the fourth preseason game. So if you're looking to glean a lot from the Giants on Saturday, good luck, because you're not going to see many of the key participants who are going to be out there during the regular season. But as far as Wilson goes, what would make Zach Wilson's debut a success tomorrow? I mean, first of all, you just want to see him. You you want to see him over center, you want to look into his eyes from that camera angle. You want to see that he's in control. You want to see that he's in command. And you want to see that there is at least a look and an appearance of competence. And again, you're not going to be able to tell an exceptional amount from his performance in one quarter of a preseason game either, but it's just another step towards evaluating this young quarterback and towards seeing what you have as the hopeful future franchise quarterback. And more than anything... You want to see from Zach Wilson as you want to make sure he takes care of the football. That is the most important thing for me from this rookie quarterback. Move the football. That would be great also. But take care of the football. Don't give it away. Don't give the other team extra possessions. That's got to be first and foremost. And that's something on the other side of town that Daniel Jones needs to learn as he enters year three. The Jets, unfortunately, shorthanded, though. Elijah Moore, the rookie wide receiver out of Ole Miss, who so many people are excited to see. I think he's going to be a big part of their offense if he can stay healthy. It seemed like he was getting rave reviews during training camp, but unfortunately, yesterday, he left practice early with a quad injury, and his head coach, Robert Sala, explained it afterwards.
5: It it was during practice. uh... Trying to figure out where I think it was around one on ones or something, but uh, um, we'll see. Are you worried? I mean, you've kind of said before, like, oh, I'm not too worried. It's not like it's one of those where you're no, I, I, you know, I'm trying to get a feel. You know, there's uh, I'm an optimist, so I'm never worried until I'm worried, but uh, so like I said, we'll see, We'll, we'll know more.
3: Robert Sala is an optimist. I like that about him. Um, you know, chances are, especially considering that the injury occurred on a Thursday, not much time to recover and what's at stake here. Chances are you don't see Elijah Moore in the preseason opener on Saturday, although as far as I know, he hasn't officially been ruled out yet. Uh, the second round pick, 34th overall out of Old Miss, still just 21 years old. Uh, he's drawn high praise during training camp for his confidence, for his maturity last season. Uh, playing in Lane Kiffin's offense at Ole Miss, eye-popping numbers, 86 catches, 1,193 yards, scored eight touchdowns. Uh, he joins a really interesting wide receiver's room now for the Jets. Look, the the two um, areas in which Joe Douglas seemed to pay most of his attention in the offseason once he drafted Zach Wilson and once he was in place was, number one, building up the offensive line and, number two, trying to build up the stable of skill position players surrounding Zach Wilson. Now, the skill position players, to continue along the Giants-Jets comparison, because that's what we do in this town, we have two teams to cover, the skill position players for the Jets are not the level of the skill position players for the Giants. But you know what? They don't have to be right now. Because the Jets are a couple of years behind the Giants just in terms of their building process. At least one year behind the Giants. I mean, the Giants, and we'll get to them, they gotta go. It's time for the Giants to go, go out and win this division. Nobody's expecting the Jets to do that, but you also want to make it as easy as possible for your first-year quarterback. So again, he's going to play about one quarter in the preseason opener. As far as more and where he fits in, I mean, look, you got wide receivers like Corey Davis and Keelan Cole who were brought in as free agents. The Denzel Mims situation, I think, is troubling. Jamison Crowder is still there. And then Elijah Moore, look, by the end of the season, would it surprise anyone if Elijah Moore is as good as anyone? I mean, Elijah Moore has as much talent and as much potential as anyone on this roster. So I want to see Zach Wilson take care of the football. I want to see him move the football. I want to see the offensive line. I mean, to me, that's what it comes down to. And Zach Wilson's performance is going to be tethered to the performance of the offensive line. Again, to use the Giants analogy, first half of last season, Daniel Jones was awful. Then the offensive line started to play better, and then Daniel Jones started to play better. All of these guys can play. All right, There are different skill levels, ultimately, but at, at, when, you, when you're starting to compare and evaluate a quarterback, these guys can all play. All right, But how are you going to protect your quarterback? How are you going to put him in the best position to succeed? Now, the Denzel Mims situation is concerning to me. In fact, Robert Sala has already been asked if the Jets organization would consider giving up on Mims. Imagine that. I mean, this guy's entering his second year in the league. Sala said absolutely not. But think about now, as we enter year two with Denzel Mims, another high draft pick, another wide receiver, drafted in the second round. And Jets fans know the recent history of pass catchers who the team has drafted in round number two. In case you don't, I'll give you a reminder in a minute. But last year, Denzel Mims starts slowly. He missed the first six games with a hamstring injury. He ended up missing seven of the 16 games. But when he finally got out on the field in a game, I thought he was really good. His numbers for the season, 23 catches, 357 yards, but he showed a lot of promise. And remember, this was a very difficult situation for anybody to put up numbers last season. Between Flacco and Sam Darnold and Adam Gase and the lack of an offensive line and the lack of offensive weapons, nobody was putting up big numbers in that offense last season. But Denzel Mims, one of your takeaways at the end of last season, if you were sitting down and analyzing that 2-14 debacle that you witnessed, one of the few positives that I think you had to take away was, okay, I think we might have something here with Denzel Mims. I really want to see what he is in year number two. Well, unfortunately, year number two for this kid, the second-year man out of Baylor, got off to another false start. About a bout of food poisoning in the offseason caused him to miss most of the offseason workouts he says he lost about 20 pounds was sick for several weeks and once again that set him back significantly now the time to claim your spot if you're Denzel Mims is on a 2 and 14 team and he had an opportunity to take the momentum that he gained toward the end of last season carry it through a strong offseason and see where you land in the depth chart For the Jets in year number two, well, unfortunately for him, he basically has to start at square one. He missed the offseason. He lost 20 pounds. He had to work his way back just to get to his playing weight. And right now, all of the momentum that he got is gone. It's back to square one for this guy. And the Jets did improve that position. I mentioned Corey Davis and Keelan Cole who came in as free agents. You have Elijah Moore, who I think could be the best of the bunch and you hope he could be. Jamison Crowder is a pro. He's a veteran. So where is Mims's start? And with all of these new guys in the mix, and look, there's not expectations for the Jets to win the division, but there's expectations for them to win more than two games. This isn't a complete reclamation rebuilding project. You've got to build off of that. So if you think that Robert Sal is not going to be interested in winning and putting the best players on the field from day one, you're crazy. The best players at that position will play. And Denzel Mims, because of his rough offseason once again, has not been put in the position to allow himself to compete for a spot, at least at the beginning of this season. So once again, he's playing from behind the the eight ball. And look, it, it gets, especially in football, when these careers are not that long, You know, you do it for one year and you show some promise, okay. But then if the same exact thing happens in year two, well, now all of a sudden people are looking at you a little bit differently. And by year three, they could be looking at you differently entirely. So to quote Yogi Berra, for a guy like Denzel Mims, it could be getting late early. So unfortunately, the news for him in the preseason hasn't been great. The Zach Wilson reports that he's struggling during training camp practices... I don't put a lot of stock into that and smarter football people than me have also said they don't put a lot of stock into that. I'm just excited to see the guy play. I'm excited to see him play on Saturday night against another team wearing a different color jersey, wearing the Jets uniform. I'm excited for that. That's obviously the most exciting thing. I remember when we saw Sam Darnold play for the first time in a preseason game and that was exciting. So that's what I'm looking forward to the most, but I'm really going to be watching the offensive line because that, that's the entire thing right there. All right, Zach Wilson's in a nice position where he doesn't need to be a top 10 quarterback right away. He just has to show a certain level of competency and that will be helped exponentially if the offensive line can protect him. But back to Denzel Mims for one more point. The Jets receiver picks, pass catcher picks in round two, the last decade alone, or in last decade, Devin Smith, Ohio State, Jason Morrow, the tight end, Texas Tech. And then, of course, Stephen Hill in 2012 out of Georgia Tech. So you you don't... And now they've gone wide receiver, round two, back-to-back years with Denzel Mims and Elijah Moore. Now, Moore hasn't been on the field yet. We're not talking about him right now. But there are some signs from Mims, all right? Remember, Stephen Hill had a great opening game one year for the Jets. A great opening game. And we all thought they had finally struck gold. So there were positive signs from even him as disappointing as he turned out to be. Just like there were positive signs last season from Denzel Mims. But you don't want his name to be one added to that infamous list in recent Jets history. You're
0: listening to Pat O'Keefe on 98.7 ESPN.
3: I want to spend a couple of minutes on the Knicks uh, and what they've done and what they continue to do in the offseason as the Summer League continues for the Knicks tonight in Las Vegas where I think they've looked very sharp so far, especially for the Knicks. The guys who you want to look sharp have looked sharp. And I'm talking about Emmanuel Quickly and I'm talking about Obi Toppin and I'm talking about Miles McBride, their second round uh, draft pick, the point guard out of West Virginia, who is, as they say, a Tom Thibodeau type of player. He's a dogged defender. Uh, he's undersized at six foot two, but he also shoots the three pointer at a very high percentage, and he's been fitting right in in this Summer League. And look, the Summer League this year is interesting because you're basically trying to evaluate two classes of Summer League players. There are the rookies, and that's usually who this is about. And by the way, the Knicks play the Pistons Summer League team tonight, which features number 1 pick in the draft, Cade Cunningham. So that's something to keep an eye out for. Uh, But for the Knicks, and really for all of these teams, remember, there was no Summer League last season. So for guys like Emmanuel Quickly and Obi Toppin, just to remind you of how last season went with the pandemic and the shortened offseason and the quick turnaround, last year in 2020, the NBA draft was in November. The season opened for the Knicks on December 23rd. There was no summer league. These guys were drafted. They had a shortened training camp, and they were thrown right into the fire. Both Quickly and Toppin were in the rotation on opening night for the Knicks. So this is their first opportunity to get extended minutes. Now, you had rookies last year like Anthony Edwards in Minnesota. They were a terrible team. Anthony Edwards could take 20 to 25 shots a game last season and not bat an eyelash. Quickly couldn't do that. Toppin couldn't do that. And there are a lot of similar rookies from last year that were playing for contending teams. Thibodeau and the Knicks didn't have the opportunity to throw their rookies out there and take their lumps because the Knicks were fighting tooth and nail for a playoff spot and every single game was important. So that's why the Summer League this year is important for guys like Quickly and Toppin. It's really their first opportunity to kind of be the man, be the lead dog, be the centerpiece while wearing a Knicks uniform. And I think you've gotten out of those two guys so far what you want to see. I mean, quickly, we know his shooting capabilities. You'd like to see him improve his shot selection for year number two. But the other thing that's going to be really important for Emmanuel quickly, look, he is not a pure point guard, but he's a combo guard who can handle the ball and who can run the point if needed. But as last season went on last year, if you noticed quickly was running the offense less and less. Well, let's look at the Knicks point guard situation right now because, of course, they made the announcement earlier this week. They made it official that Kemba Walker has signed a two-year contract with the Knicks. Great local story from the Soundview section of the Bronx. Famed Rice High School in Harlem. UConn, where he played in the Big East and starred in the Big East Tournament and hit one of the most memorable shots in Big East Tournament history. National championship there. And then a four-time All-Star and All-NBA player with the Hornets Hornets, and Boston Celtics. So you got Kemba Walker, you got Derrick Rose. That's your point guard situation. Pretty good. Definitely better than last year when it was Alfred Payton and Derrick Rose. But here's the thing. Walker has injury issues. So what kind of Kemba Walker are we going to see? I think you can safely rule out that he's going to be the Kemba Walker of two years ago when he was not only in the NBA All-Star game, but one of the starters in the All-Star game. But the Knicks don't need him to be that guy. It would be nice, but I don't think that's a reasonable expectation. But if you can get 70% of Kemba, that is a lot better than what you had last year with Alfred Payton. And then you put those two guys together, Kemba as your starter, Derrick Rose can go back to his bench role and basically split the minutes 25 minutes a game for kemba walker 23 minutes a game for derrick rose it sounds great and that's the way that i would like to see it play out to try to preserve both of them for the postseason here's the one thing though and this is not something that tom thibodeau has exhibited much during his coaching career with the mileage on the legs of both walker and rose and the points that both of them are in their careers Tibbs has to schedule some off days for these guys, all right? He's got to build in some rest days and some maintenance days. And look, one of the reasons the Knicks were so successful last season, because it was pedal to the metal, R.J. Barrett played in and started every single game. Julius Randle led the league in minutes, played in and started 71 of the 72 games. There were no nights off. There were no maintenance days. There were no rest days for the Knicks. But the situation this year is different, because of who your point guards are. So if you're going to give a day off here to Kemba Walker, who's going to be your next playmaker? Who's going to fill that role and take those minutes? Because you don't want, when Kemba's off, you don't want Derrick Rose playing 32 minutes. That's not the idea here. You want to keep Rose's minutes the same when Walker is off, and vice versa. So who's going to pick up those minutes? Well, the two most obvious candidates are Emmanuel Quickly and Miles McBride. And McBride is still a work in progress. He's looked good in a couple of summer league games. is a guy who has performed on the NBA level in a postseason playoff race. Now, the one area where Quickly needs to improve from last year, or I should say the biggest area he needs to improve, is his playmaking. And his first two summer league games, he comes out. That's obviously a point of emphasis. Eight assists each game for Emmanuel Quickly. So that's one of the areas of development that you want to see from quickly going into his second year. And you know what you, you love if you're watching these games? I mean, at the Summer League, the, the head coach, the actual head coach doesn't coach the games. It's an assistant coach who coaches the Summer League team. But the head coach is there, and he's watching, and he's evaluating, and usually they kind of keep a low profile. Tibbs is there. The second the game ends, Tibbs is on the court, in his players' faces, not, not yelling at them, but just in his players' faces, coaching them immediately. I mean, he it's like he's chomping at the bit on the sidelines to pass along the evaluations that he has made during the course of that game. And that's why the Knicks went 41-31 and 31 last year. And that's why he was the coach of the year, because the man is always coaching, and he is a terrific coach. So those are going to be two important things coming out of the Summer League as the Knicks look ahead to the... Uh, 2021-2022 season, obviously a new starting backcourt with Kemba Walker and Evan Fournier. R.J. Barrett is still entrenched in the starting lineup. If he can improve as much from year two to year three as he did from year one to year two, well, that's that's the best case scenario, isn't it? Then you've got a guy who's knocking on the door of an all-star bid. It might be a tall ask, but you definitely want to see the continued improvement from R.J. Barrett. So there's a lot to like from the Knicks offseason. Let's go to the phones. 1-800-919-3776. Let's go to Bill in Morristown. Bill, what's going on?
1: Hey, Pat. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I know Fournier
5: and Walker are not like the sexiest signings, but I think um, based on what this team needed, I think they are really good additions because last year, especially in the playoffs, it was just so obviously, obvious that they didn't have a guy who you can just give the ball to, ISO, and get a bucket. And those, I think Walker and Fournier are two guys that absolutely can do that. And they're both like very good three point shooters. So you take out um, Peyton, who couldn't shoot. Uh, you take Rose is going his minutes will probably go down. He's not the best three point shooter. I think it's really going to open up things for Randall too, because um, you can't collapse on him because you're adding two more like very good three point shooters to the mix. So you know I'd rather have Damian Lillard. I'd rather have you know a, a sexier name, but I think these are two good additions, and you know, all their
1: defensive deficiencies Tibbs can make up for with great team defense.
3: Thanks for the call, Bill. It's incremental improvement for the Knicks, and that's what you're looking at right now. I think everybody would rather have Damian Lillard, but Damian Lillard wasn't on the table. Damian Lillard wasn't in the cards for this coming season. But what the Knicks did, they did two things. Number one, they got better. They improved their roster from what they were last year. And number two, they didn't do so at the expense of eliminating themselves from possibly acquiring a Damian Lillard or someone else in the future. That is still on the table with the nature of the free agent contracts that they handed out this offseason. But yeah, I agree with our caller because think about where the Knicks were in the postseason last year. And Randall was completely bobbled up. And when he kicked the ball out to Barrett or to Quickly or to Bullock or to Burks, Burks was good in game one but not the rest of the series. All of those guys went cold and they couldn't hit the open shot. And then when the Hawks recognized that, then they paid even more attention to Julius Randle and he couldn't hit a shot because he was bottled up the entire time. And on the few instances Randle was open, he still couldn't hit a shot just because he was in a funk in that playoff series. And it was largely because of the defensive scheme of the Hawks. It was largely because all of the pressure on Randle to make something happen Look, in the playoffs last year, there was one guy on the Knicks roster during those five games against the Hawks who, if he had the ball in his hands, you were confident that he could go and create a shot. And that was Derrick Rose. But what happened to Derrick Rose by games four and game five? He was exhausted. He was playing 37 minutes a game. That is not sustainable. And by games four and games five... Derrick Rose wasn't able to do that either. So that's where the addition of Walker comes in. Number one, to alleviate some of the pressure off of Derek Rose. And number two, Walker is a guy who, if healthy, and we know that's an if, can create his own shot. Definitely more so than Alfred Payton. And Fournier, as good as Reggie Bullock was. And Reggie Bullock on the defensive end, better than Evan Fournier is going to be. And that's where Tibbs is going to have to come in to mask some of that deficiency. But on the offensive end, Reggie Bullock, He was a catch-and-shoot three-point shooter and shot it very well last year, around 40%. Fournier can do that, but Fournier can also put the ball on the ground if the shot clock is winding down and create his own shot from 17, 18, 19 feet away. Reggie Bullock could not do that. Let's go to Spike in St. Pete. Hey, Spike.
1: Hey, Pat, good to hear you. Uh, I'll hear Nick's talk. You know, I mean, I, I think uh, they call him Deuce McBride. I saw him play at West Virginia. I think Hoggins is the coach still. And yep. uh, they really, uh, the, kid, the kid got a big wingspan. And uh, I really like his release. It's kind of a little funky over the top, and uh, he could really fill it up. And uh, I, lo- I you know, exactly what you said is exactly how I feel. They're experimenting with quickly. The uh, other thing he has to improve in is the shock selection, but that comes with time. Obi looks good with his footwork. He's got to improve his three point shot, but he's live. And the other kid, I forget his name, you'll help me. Maybe Sims has the live body under the rim. That, Jericho that Sims him?
3: from Texas, yeah.
1: Yeah. Whoa. Yeah, Texas guy, yeah. So maybe he'll be another KD. Who knows? All kidding aside, I mean he just has a live body, and uh, you know they got the uh, three-headed center, to, uh, and uh, you know uh, this guy. Look, I'm not a you know I'm not a big Mitchell Robinson fan. Uh, number one, he's injury prone, and he's never developed any moves. But he's a great rim protector. So, uh, and you can't argue with re-signing. Well, Taj is just—he's like an assistant coach on the floor. He rarely makes a mistake, but he's fifteen minutes a game tops. But I think that um, Knowles—I really like what they did. They—they they paid the guys they underpaid last year. Knowles, Knowles, when he had that game and made eight in a row from the free throw line, and uh, he's another guy that would have had a better career base. He got drafted lower, I think, eight or seven, and he's been injury riddled. But uh, we could drop two or say, we as Nick fans, we could drop two or three sheets and have a better team. Way it looks, and who cares? You know, get that playoff experience, and it's up to Tibbs now. Just like you said, to get Fournier to buy in, he's going to get beat. He's going to get beat by a really good guard off the dribble, a small forward, and uh, it's going to be someone back there that's going to have to uh, alter the shot. That's all. I'm thrilled tonight. I want to see Quickly really taking charge, and, um, boy, he can get to the rim. <laughs> he, he beats everybody off the dribble. It's amazing. You know, the second round pitch may turn out to be pretty good. We'll see. You know, who are you playing against? The uniform said Lakers Knicks, but I knew I knew every Knick. I had to look up some of the Lakers. I don't I don't know if you did or not. I, I have
3: no idea who some of no them were. Yeah, I, I don't think the Lakers, thanks to the call spike, have many guys eligible for their summer league team because everybody on the Lakers is over 35 years old. So I don't know how much stock they're putting into their summer league. But the Knicks certainly are because the Knicks aren't where the Lakers are. The Lakers' uh, expectation this year is to win the NBA championship. As nice as it would be for that to be the Knicks' expectation, the truth is it's not. It's not. That's not in the cards for the Knicks this season. The, the question is, and I agree with Spike, and I've made this point before, the Knicks could be better this year but move back in the standings because look at the Eastern Conference. So many teams got better. I mean, where's Brooklyn going, right? They're already ahead of the Knicks. Milwaukee is the NBA champs. Philadelphia, they've got to sort out the Ben Simmons situation. But whatever they do there, they're still, in my mind, gonna. they're not going to break the whole thing down with Joel Embiid in his prime. They're still going to be at the top of the Eastern Conference. Miami got a lot better. Atlanta, we saw what they did in the postseason last year. If Trey Young doesn't step back on a referee's ankle or foot and sprain his ankle, they might go to the NBA Finals. So that's five teams right there. And then, you know, Charlotte was right there with the Knicks until they had some injury issues. Indiana, you got to figure, is going to be improved as injured players come back, and they have a better head coach in Rick Carlisle. Like The Celtics, they haven't really done much this offseason, but they still have two all-stars to anchor their team around. So there's potential for the Knicks to be better and to continue to build towards their ultimate goal, and take a step or two back this year standings-wise. And I don't think that's the worst thing in the world. And I think it's important for people to remember. You're listening to
0: Pat O'Keefe on 98.7 ESPN.
3: Got some football in New York tomorrow, and you can hear it right here. Giants-Jets preseason opener. Our live coverage on uh, 98.7 ESPN New York begins at 6.30. Dan Grassa, Greg Buttle, pregame coverage. 7.30 kickoff with Bob Weschusen and Marty Lyons. So football season, at least the preseason, is here in New York. Touching on that, touching on the Knicks, whatever else is on your mind. Field of Dreams game last night, which was uh, special and gut wrenching for the Yankee fans, all at the same time. One eight hundred nine one nine three seven seven six. Let's go to the phones and Marcus in New Jersey. Hey, Marcus. Uh, hey, hello. Hello. Go ahead, Marcus.
1: Yeah. Uh, what's up? So, you know, as a Bears fan, right? You know, someone who believed in Mitchell Trubisky for a little bit, until so, you know you saw it here, You saw it went. But uh, you know, I live in Jersey, so I see Daniel Jones, and uh I feel like he gets a pass in the media a little bit um it's his second like year three he 's gone into I feel like uh we haven 't really seen many flashes of potential from Daniel Jones that makes you say he 's a franchise quarterback, and uh like yeah, how do you feel about that
3: I think that 's fair to say uh Marcus, and i like I think there there is a fair comparison between Daniel Jones and Mitchell Trubisky. Um, I don't know that Daniel Jones has gotten a pass in the media. I think that there's been a lot of uh, frustration um, at times with his play. I do think that he has shown flashes. Now, what do those flashes mean? I still can't put my finger on it. And I think that's what's the frustrating thing about Daniel Jones. I I still, I'm not 100% sold on what his ceiling is. I mean, I I can't sit here right now and say his ceiling is anything higher than a top 15 quarterback in the NFL. I mean, that might be the high point. And if it is, that's a really, really disappointing result for somebody who was picked sixth overall in the draft. But we haven't had the opportunity to see see Daniel Jones in the same system for the second year in a row with his full complement of weapons, which he now has. And most importantly, with his most important weapon in Saquon Barkley. We haven't had the opportunity to see that. This has to be the year. I mean, because if it's not, then he could go the way of Mitchell Trubisky, who's now backing up in Buffalo. Daniel Jones could easily find himself as a backup with another organization. If he has another subpar year, the difference between the New York situation and the Chicago situation would be this. If Daniel Jones leaves after this season, Dave Gettleman's leaving out the door right alongside him. Whereas Ryan Pace uh, still has his job in Chicago as they have now moved on to Justin Fields as their quarterback of the future. But we won't see Daniel Jones tomorrow night. We do know that we will see Zach Wilson, who's expected to play at about a quarter, uh, about a quarter of the first quarter of that game at MetLife Stadium tomorrow. Uh, DCR, the guys, the DCR guys, excuse me, are coming up next right here. Uh, they're holding down the Michael K show today and this entire week. And they spoke about the Giants at length in terms of what would make this year for a successful Giants season. In your mind, what constitutes a successful season for the Giants? You got to be over 500. You have to.
0: Be. Yeah, Well, right. I mean, eight, nine, nine and eight, something right there in that range. And I have to go into week 17 of the 18 week schedule with a, a chance to go to the postseason, mm-hmm. okay. I can't. I can't go one in five again, one in six, and then all of a sudden, you know, go five and three and say, "Oh, but the second half of the season was better." None of that anymore. I need to have a real season. I, I'm telling you what. If I go six and eleven or seven and ten, and I'm and I win the division, I don't know that I've had a successful season. To be honest with you, I, I need. I need wins. I need. I need to put wins on the table. I need the rest of the league to look at Daniel Jones and say, "You know what? He's a real quarterback." The Giants have their quarterback. It's a non-issue.
3: No, but if that's the case, though, if what you just said is what people are saying at towards the end of the season, that means you should be uh, you should be right there to win the division. The Giants should be right there to win the division. Uh, enough is enough. And look, I agree with Dave uh, and to the extent that the only way that 8-9 would be acceptable to me is if the Giants go into week 17 with a chance to reach the playoffs. But even 8-9 isn't good enough. It's not a good division. It's one of the it was it was a historically bad division last year and the Giants had a chance to win it with a 6-10 and record and still couldn't get that done. And now you look at Dallas, a team that underachieves year after year after year, does not have a good defense, and their most prominent player is a quarterback who's coming off a gruesome ankle injury. You have Washington, a team with a journeyman quarterback who has an excellent defense and won the division last year. And you have a Philadelphia team who, in my opinion, should not be a factor in this division, although be careful with that because the Philadelphia situation scares me a little bit and to use a uh, example from baseball remember at the beginning of this baseball season the Red Sox were supposed to be in rebuilding mode and then all of a sudden they got off to this hot start and right now here we are on August 13th and they're still holding down one of the wild card spots in the American League I do think that there's some sort of potential for Philadelphia just because it's a franchise and an organization that never completely bottoms out but why should the Giants be in the playoff hunt slash in the playoffs this year well look around at the other division I mean, the Giants don't have the Buccaneers in their division. They don't have the Saints. They don't have the Seahawks, the 49ers, the Rams. They don't have the Packers. They don't have the Chiefs. They don't have the Browns. They don't have the Ravens. They don't have the Bills. They don't have the Patriots. I mean, the Giants division is the National League East of the NFL. And they were building towards a division championship last year. They almost got it. They didn't get it but they were building towards it last year. This is the year where you have to see it through because your quarterback situation on paper, if this is the guy is better than the quarterback situations of at least two of the other three teams in your division. Now it's not all on Daniel Jones. A big reason why we want to see Daniel Jones take that next step this year is number one, it is his third year and it's his uh, second season starting the year season as the unquestioned quarterback of the team and then the other thing is the Saquon Barkley factor and Daniel Jones his first year when his stats were better a big reason for that is because he had Saquon Barkley in the backfield alongside him which he did not last year now Barkley we hope and think is going to be back as early as week one and Dan Orlovsky who does a great job analyzing the NFL was on get up this week said this year is as important for Saquon Barkley as it is for Daniel Jones.
2: Yeah, I mean, if you're going to say it's a make-or-break year for Daniel Jones, you better say it's a make-or-break year for Saquon Barkley as well, okay? It is. Now, talking about Daniel Jones, and I love the fact that Lewis brought up the offensive line. Best quarterbacks in football last year, overall speaking, were Aaron Rodgers, Josh Allen, Patrick Mahomes, Lamar Jackson, Russell Wilson, Tom Brady, and Ryan Tannehill. They all have top 10 offensive lines, okay? I'm hoping that... The football community is realizing that quarterbacks, for the most part, cannot play good football unless they have an opportunity to do something with the football. And the Giants offensive line stunk last year. So if Daniel Jones is going to get better, it's going to be in part because the offensive line gives him the opportunity to play better. And then with Saquon Barkley, Bud, you were drafted second. I know you're an all-world talent, and I think you're a remarkable player, but it's got to happen missed 17 games the last two years. I understand the ACL, but you're the second pick of the draft. Your rookie year, you went for 2,000 yards. And then your second year, you went down to 1,400. He's got to go be a guy. I mean, Saquon Barkley was supposed to be the next Adrian Peterson. So he's got to go perform at that second overall pick level to help Daniel Jones play better football.
3: I think there's a tendency regarding Saquon Barkley uh, because Giants fans haven't seen him in so long. He was injured in week two last year and you didn't see him the rest of the way and you really haven't seen much of him since and I think there is the tendency to assume that when Saquon Barkley gets back out on the field, it's going to be the 2018 version of Saquon Barkley, the one who led the NFL in yards from scrimmage, the one who averaged 126 yards from scrimmage per game and scored 15 touchdowns in 16 games as a rookie. But you have to remember that Barkley and Orlovsky just pointed that out. Barkley took a step back from year one to year two. And I know he only played 13 games in year two because he did get injured. But even if you look at the per game average for Saquon Barkley in 2019, he went from 126 yards per game to 110 yards per game. He went from 15 total touchdowns to eight total touchdowns. So he was already trending the wrong direction when he took the field for opening night of of season number three. And opening night last year, you remember the Steelers game, the one full game he played last year. And look, I'm not judging where he is as a football player and his entire season on one game, but his first game last year was alarming. Remember that on Monday night against the Steelers, 15 carries for six yards? Now, he did have 60 receiving yards in that game, but he was bottled up in that first Monday night game like we had never seen before. And then the next week in Chicago, he tears the ACL and he was done for the season. So... Will we ever see the 2018 version of Saquon Barkley again? I mean, Daniel Jones clearly needs him to be at least the 2019 version of Saquon Barkley, but there's no guarantees that's going to happen. So it's a great point. I know that the headline is it's a make-or-break season for Daniel Jones because he's the guy who has never actually proven himself in the NBA, in the NBA, excuse me, in the NFL, whereas Barkley had at least that one rookie standout season. And even though he took a step back his second season, He was still very productive. So he has proven himself in the NFL. Daniel Jones has not. That's why he gets all the headlines as make or break season for him. But it's also a very important season for Saquon Barkley. Will he ever be the player he was in 2018? Will he be 90% of that guy? Will he be 60% of that guy? I mean, that's going to go a long way towards determining what the Giants do this season and what they do the next five years. You're listening to Pat
0: O'Keefe on 98.7 ESPN.